0: Welcome to Juice Guru Radio. Discover what the magic and power of juicing can do for you. And now, your host, best-selling author of The Complete Idiot's Guide to Juice Fasting, Steve Prusak.
1: Hello and welcome. Welcome to Juice Guru Radio. I'm your host, Steve Prusak, and it's great to be with you. And on today's show, we are paying tribute to our dear friend and the memory of the wonderful and phenomenal and most inspiring Dr. Jameth Sheridan. He shared so much with us in his time on this planet, and we want to spread his message on this very episode of Juice Guru Radio, so stay tuned for the best of Dr. Jameis Sheridan right after this. Here's another Juice Guru approved product. Hey there, Juice Guru Tribe. Here at Juice Guru, we've tried a lot of juicers, but the one we've chosen as our absolute favorite for the last three years in a row has been the Try Best Slow Star. Order your own Try Best Slow Star at the Juice Guru Tribe discount by visiting our website at juiceguru.com. Try Best Slow Star makes healthy
0: living easy. Get one today. Juice Guru Radio.
1: Hello and welcome back. Welcome back to Juicero Radio. I'm your host Steve, and it's great to be with you. And on today's show, we tip our hat with the deepest love and honor to our brother, Dr. Jameth Sheridan, who left us just half a year ago. Um, we received the news recently, and it's really been hard for us to uh, imagine that he's no longer with us. His his message will stay alive. His vibrant compassionate message. And as a result, we were honored to do lots of interviews with him through the years. Some only aired once, some um, were underground. And so on this episode, we're going to spread the best of Dr. Jameis Sheridan from our interviews with him um, and in the hopes that this will be carried far and wide. So please share this with those you love, your friends, family, those that uh, really need to reawaken to evolution on a conscious level and through the foods we are eating uh, without any delay uh, and with love, honor and respect going out to Dr. Jameis Sheridan, those he left behind his family, Kim Sheridan, his brother and mom, everyone else. This show is dedicated to the memory of our brother, Dr. James Sheridan. Guest is Dr. James Sheridan. He's a doctor of holistic medicine, naturopath, and hardcore natural medicine researcher. He's one of the early pioneers of the vegan, organic, holistic and conscious raw foods movement. He's been deeply immersed in holistic health for twenty nine years, veganism for twenty seven years, and raw foods for twenty six years. He's a ceaseless researcher, experimenter, and innovator. And he excels in all areas of his life, including the realms of physical, emotional, and spiritual health. He's the co founder and CEO of Health Force Nutritionals at www.healthforce.com. Let's welcome to Evolved Palooza Dr. Jameth Sheridan.
0: Thanks very so much for having me, Steve.
1: So, Jameth where does it begin for you there's so much information out there in conscious living and how it applies to food what have you discovered in your research
0: I have discovered a, a lot and that uh, things are, are not always what they seem to be and my information and my knowledge and experience of what I believe about the best diet for, for people um, and it's a little bit different for every person has evolved over time over the past 29 years and I assume it will continue to evolve And that's very, very important because some people get stuck in ruts. And uh, I believe that I have some information that everybody can benefit from, no matter what your diet is, no matter what you think your diet is going to be after this talk. There's some really critical information that I think everybody needs to know, two pieces of which most people do not know because they come from my research, and I've revealed it very, very little. Um, And I want to start talking about, evolution in general, what things we have evolved from and what we can aspire to. For example, you used to be allowed to beat your wife. That was okay. It was allowed. It wasn't against the law. It wasn't a, well, big deal. At least I'm sure it to the wife. But we've evolved that you can't do that anymore. I don't think men want to do that. Um, but then there was a rule of thumb. There was a, a little evolution. And the rule of thumb actually went that you, the stick that you beat your wife with couldn't be bigger than your thumb. So that's kind of a, a bad backwards evolution. At least there was some recognition there. Thank God, it was, what if your husband has big hands? And now you're not allowed to do that at all. So that's an evolution. And, you know, we don't want it to, we want it to evolve. Um, it used to be that women, when you got married, had to love, honor, and obey their husbands. I think very few women would agree to that these days, and most men wouldn't want their wives to agree to that. They want to be partners. So we, we've evolved as a culture that way, and that's a good thing. Children, used to only, in certain cultures, uh, early America, at least uh, certain religious sects, you can only speak when spoken to. You're allowed to beat your children. No one would tolerate that these days. Of course, you can go in the other direction, but we've evolved from that, and that's a good thing. Um, other areas where we've evolved is, in the past, more so when there was less law in the world, if you had a disagreement with someone, well, you could just go out and start a fight with them, just start a fist fight them, just beat each other up right there, um, that happens far less now because there's more consequences, and I think people know that there's bigger consequences of that, and we, we've evolved. To a certain extent, maybe some nations are less likely to blow each other up than in the past, but I wouldn't say that's an area where we've evolved real well, and I think we still need some a lot more evolution with that as a culture, as a human culture. We're not good with national agreements, so we need. Also, slavery. Slavery has evolved throughout the years, and for example, the Spartans used to have Greek slaves. That's how they were able to just focus on war and being great warriors all the time because they had slaves to serve their every needs. Um, that evolved when the Spartans actually uh, fought a, a war with the Thebans, and the Thebans actually beat the Spartans, and the Thebans went ahead and freed all those Greek slaves that the Spartans had. That was an evolution. But then Greeks enslaved other cultures, so then they devolved. And then the Romans enslaved the Greeks, and then the English enslaved the African people. But the English people eventually decided to banish slavery of anyone in their country, and that was an evolution. Um, And it evolved, and that's good. Early Americans, uh, learning from their home country of England, also enslaved African people. But the most costly war as far as human lives fought in the history of America was fought to evolve this situation, to free the slaves, and that was a civil war. So evolution does take place. And I say it's time for some dietary evolution. I want to talk about some. But before that, I want to bring up one more evolution. Back in the ancient world, the Aztecs and other South American cultures, they used to sacrifice humans. They had selection process and uh, to rip out their heart, have their blood drip down the steps, the whole procedure. And they thought that was important from their misinterpretation of signs. and we, And then they some of them then stopped doing that and they quote evolved to just slaughtering animals in that fashion and did that and now that's not accepted and and most of those same cultures don't do that there might be someone somewhere in some forest somewhere that's doing that but the vast majority of people do not believe in that and know that that was not a good thing to do and they've evolved out of that and with our diet we've certainly evolved over the years and we've devolved and I say it's time for another evolution and uh Within evolution, sometimes there's de-evolutions. And over the years, many stages in wise people have evolved their diets. Sometimes they change their diets to various different types of diets. Um, sometimes it's just because when you have a clarity of mind, when you're healthier, you have a much better clarity of mind. And it's easier to evolve your life, to be spiritual, just to have a, a good existence on planet Earth. It's so much easier if your mind is clear because your mind's not worrying about how unhealthy you are, and if your body feels good, it just frees you to live your life. It makes such a big difference. And one of the biggest dietary evolutions that we're coming back to, which we used to do, and it's pretty much everybody knows, it's inherent. When I shop, either at the farmer's market or the health food store, the vast majority of the things in my cart is fresh fruits and vegetables, vegetables, nuts, seeds, grains, beans, all these whole foods, some powders and things of herbs. And everyone says, wow, I wish I ate that healthy. Wow, do you have a restaurant who eats all that food? I'm like, my wife and I do. Because everybody recognizes, every time I go to the Farmer's Market Health Food Store for the most part, everybody recognizes that that is one of the ultimate evolutions of diets is eating fresh fruits and vegetables. And that's why today probably the most the fastest growing and most popular dietary system that's, that's more than up and coming, that's common, and it's up and coming even more, is raw foods. And I'm fortunate to be one of the early pioneers of the raw foods movement, not the pioneer, did not invent it, nature invented it, and there were many great people that came before me whose information I learned and studied and then I evolved it, I think to a, a great extent. There's been some people that have stayed back in what I consider a a de-evolved state, and I hope that one day when I'm done evolving this, that people will evolve what I've taught. And I want to talk about uh, some huge benefits of eating more fruits and vegetables. Whether you think you want to become a raw food or a vegan or not a vegan or not a raw food or any of that, you can still eat a huge amount of fruits and vegetables and some other principles in raw foods and plant foods here that I'm talking about, and have tremendous benefits yourself and it's not an all or nothing and it can help all the rest of the evolution you want to do in your life. And I'm going to talk about a dark side of raw foods that virtually nobody knows about because it's things that I have researched myself and it's critical to have understand this piece of dietary evolution because it is a paradigm shift and it will completely change the way you think about raw foods and also about plant versus animal proteins is a total paradigm shift and i'm going to talk about it a little bit later and i want everyone to hang on because you really will be surprised at what you're eating or what you're not eating and what it's doing to your body and it's going to make complete sense to you it's going to really come bring things full circle i look forward to when we get to there
1: well at this point i would like to ask everyone to turn off any distractions if you have any browsers open you're surfing the internet or if. Uh, you've got your cell phone there, your smartphone, if you can turn that off, now would be a good time to pull out a pad and start taking some notes. This is going to be an incredible session uh, with cutting-edge information, Dr. Sheridan, so thank you for bringing this.
0: You're welcome. Okay, I want to talk about raw foods. There's five reasons why a raw food diet is good for you, and before that, Why even go raw? Why do people go into raw foods? What compels them? What compels them is they hear of people and they see people that have gone on a raw foods diet and overcome what would otherwise be allegedly incurable diseases. Amazing. Amazing. I've met people, for example, with multiple sclerosis. A friend of mine that I met who was in a wheelchair he used to run triathlons, and he got multiple goals, got in a wheelchair. He adopted a healthy raw food diet, a healthy raw food vegan diet, and a year after he was in a wheelchair, he was competing in triathlons again faster than when he started. That's just an example, wow. and there's other degenerative diseases that people have overcome on a healthy whole food raw food diet, and even if you don't have degenerative disease, you don't want to get one because over half the people in America die of heart disease and I think it's 41% of the people die of cancer or are going to get cancer at some point in their life. Preventing these things is really important, and you always think it's not going to happen to me. But even if you don't have one of these dire diseases, everyone gets stiffer and older, and uh, their eyesight starts to go, their hearing, their senses, it's harder to move, it's harder to exist. And if we can reverse that, and we can both reverse a lot of that, and we can also stave off that aging. Not so you live a long time in a state of misery, because nobody would want to do that. I wouldn't want to live to 100 or 200 or 300 years old if I was decrepit and couldn't function. I'd say, recycle me, start me over. I want to come back fresh. But you want to extend the positive, helpful, productive part of your life. You want to do better for the environment. You want to be more compassionate. You want to just be a, a higher quality human being, and you can do that with some raw food diet principles. So it's really a compelling, strongly compelling diet to enter, and there's so many reasons people do it because there's so many compelling reasons. The good. Here's the five reasons the raw food diet is good, but only one of the reasons is given credit. So five people. Steve, if you and I take a project, we start building a wall. Me and you build a wall, and we have three other really equally hard workers helping us build that wall. So me, you, three other people, there's five of us. But Steve, if you're the only one getting the credit on that wall and someone else wants a wall built, they say, Steve, let's come build a wall. We want to hire you, Steve, because you built that other wall. You can't build that wall by yourself unless you have your four other your four other buddies to build that wall with you. It's a critical. So we've got to give credit where credit's due. That being said, the five reasons raw food diet is healthy, and at the end you can guess, extra credit, what's the reason that's given. Here's the five reasons. One, when you go raw or mostly raw, you go organic. Raw fooders are probably the most, one of the most passionate, forward-thinking health people you can imagine, that the health system there. Not, not, not of any system, but most systems. They're really, really focused on organic. It's really part of the whole raw foods culture, and that is critical because pesticides are absolutely horrible for us. They destroy our bodies. They accumulate in our bodies, in our fat tissue. In fact, mother's milk in almost every area of the world, including remote areas, have traces of pesticides that have been banned for decades, still in them, and they have other pesticides that aren't still banned. And it's really hard to get away from that. But the more raw food you eat, the more organic food you eat, the less likely you are to have pesticide residues in your body, interfering with your endocrine system, interfering with your with your immune system just destroying your health. It's one of those things you can just really want to avoid. And also, organic foods are not genetically modified. I know you've had uh, Jeffrey Smith, the, the, the leader of the anti-GMO movement, on, and that information is critical. You want to ha- have non-GMO foods, and if it truly is organic, it's not GMO. There are there's some issue with GMO contamination and lots of things these days. I'm trying to avoid that with a true organic standard I've established, but that's a whole other lecture. Mm-hmm. Organic, one of the main reasons. Another reason that a raw food diet is so healthy and so good is you don't just go from eating a cooked cheeseburger to a raw cheeseburger, a cooked white flour, white sugar, hydrogenated oil, all, egg cookie to a raw one, a cooked Twinkie to a raw Twinkie, a cooked hot dog to a raw hot dog. You go to eat a whole different class of food. You eat whole foods. You're now eating broccoli and spinach and kale and collard greens and grapes and pineapples and oranges and papayas um, and, and food, actual foods and nuts and seeds and legumes, things that are actual whole foods. You're now a whole fooder. And if all you do in your diet is become an organic whole fooder, you have made dramatic shifts no matter what you're eating. If it's organic and whole foods, huge shift, huge, gigantic and these aren't necessarily in order to these reasons. Another reason that it makes such a huge difference when you become a raw fooder is with very little exception, and we'll talk about the exception later on, when you're a raw fooder, you are now a vegan. And becoming a vegan alone is a gigantic step in your health. Even just eliminating animal products is absolutely huge, even if you're a junk food vegan. It makes a big difference, but you don't want to be a junk food vegan. And... If you want to think of an evolution, a tiger, if you take a tiger in the forest, in the the jungle, tigers have a short digestive tract compared to human beings. They have totally different saliva. They have enzymes, an enzyme called uricase in their saliva, which digests the uric acid from animal protein. We don't have that enzyme, so animal protein in our bodies accumulates uric acid as a result of the metabolism of it, and that contributes to osteoporosis, arthritis, gout, and aging in general.
1: Well, there might be some questions here, Dr. Sheridan, about the paleo diet because isn't that a raw food diet and that's really popular now and people are perhaps confusing the two?
0: It's a raw food-oriented diet that is, has an emphasis on whole foods, an emphasis on organic. So right there, there's big differences in that. But it also has a huge emphasis on eating animal products and in some cases raw animal products. But actually, the paleo diet eats far more animal products, far more than any ancient culture other than the royalty, and we'll get to what, how is that different, ever ate. Because eating animals is difficult in a state of nature for human beings. If you're the tiger, you have the inclination psychologically, and then you have the tools, the onboard tools, the enzymes, the whole endocrine system, the claws, the teeth, and the ability to pounce on animals and rip them to shreds and open them, drink their alkaline blood, eat their pancreas, and eat them while they're still warm. Sometimes this case, is the heart is beating, um, the animals, birds will come Sometimes the vultures and actually peck the eyes out and eat all the parts of that animal. They'll actually eat it as a whole food. Whereas humans, right now, they're eating paleo diets, and actually most humans over the history of the time never ate all those things because they found it psychologically gross to be drinking the blood and eating the actual vein material, it's not appealing to us. And many of those old paleo cultures, because it's so hard to hunt down an animal, they farmed instead, and when they they ate animals, it was rare because it took so much energy. I'm going to be talking about something that is an evolution from the paleo diet when we get to animal protein later on. How you can take that paleo diet and you can take it to the next level and how some raw foods programs have actually caused the paleo diet. And when we get into fruit, we'll talk about that. Fruit paleo, let me make a note on that. Okay, and also, going vegan is the best single thing you can do for the planet. You have more greenhouse gases consumed in the, in the, in the growing and the processing of animals than you do in anything else you do, including if you drove a Hummer, one of the older Hummers. Going vegan has a greater impact on the environment than anything else you can possibly do. And I think, with, especially with today's environmental crisis, that's a huge evolution. Even just giving up 10 or 20% of the animal products you eat in your diet makes a huge difference in fossil fuel consumption, in lack of rainforest destruction. It's a gigantic step. It's not an all-or-nothing Also, when you go raw. That's the third reason. You're an organic, whole foods, vegan. Gigantic difference in your health. And that actually would be the healing phase of a macrobiotic diet. It's almost all cooked. It tends to be organic. It's all whole food and it's vegan at that point. And people have overcome cancer, heart disease, and other diseases on that diet and it's all cooked. But people sometimes hear the adage, cooked food is poison. But how can you overcome cancer and heart disease and other diseases on a diet that's all poison? It doesn't seem to make sense.
1: Well, isn't fish healthy? I mean, recently the uh, Food Revolution Summit happened with John and Ocean Robbins, and John Robbins was once known as the father of the vegetarian movement, but yet he admits to consuming fish and has been doing it for years. Is there a benefit eating fish that we would want that message getting out there?
0: There actually is not. I, you know, I'm surprised here that I didn't know that about John Robbins, and that that would be his interpretation of Evolution. I, I respect everyone's interpretation of evolution, but it's not mine. And you know, the other. Let me. Let's get right into that. The other two reasons that raw is considered healthy is also or why it is healthy is you eat a lot of fruits and vegetables. It's not just whole foods. It's fruits and vegetables, and it's also raw. There's five reasons there, but raw's given all the credit. So let's go into let's go into fish now, since that seems to be top of mind. One reason. I'm going to give you an example of a diet. I was at a dietary lecture from a health professional, well-known health professional that writes many health books actually on, on vegan nutrition. And this is completely ties into fish. And this was a ultra-low protein, ultra-low fat, ultra-low sugar, little to no sodium regime. And it works for many people, um, you know, high-fiber and uh, many people have overcome heart disease and so many other diseases on that diet with that author. And this woman came up and she said, you know what? I need to eat fish every so often because I just don't feel good. I don't have the energy and I, I stop eating it and I don't feel good. And I, and I go back on the vegan diet, which is no such thing as the vegan diet. She was on a specific limited vegan diet where she wasn't allowed salt, sugar, hardly any protein, and little to no fat, no oils whatsoever. Not even avocados, not even nuts or seeds. And naturally, you'd be eating some nuts or seeds. You'd be eating avocados. And so the author there, the speaker, said, well, you know, the diet's not a panacea. It doesn't work for everyone. You probably need to eat fish every so often. And me knowing more information and going deeper than that lecturer, I was just like, oh, my God, I can't believe he said that. I can't believe he didn't evolve and ask her more and find out more about that woman and her scenario. So I followed that woman through the crowd after, away from the speaker because I didn't want to create any controversy and I said, excuse me, would you like to try to do this all plant-based? She said, yes, but as I blah, blah, blah. I said, I heard that what you said. I said, I have a suggestion for you and I'm happy to give it to you and, and if it works for you, or either whether it works or doesn't, I want you to tell me how this will work. I want you to contact me and tell me how it works. So I said, okay, here's what I'd like you to do. I'd like you to soak and steam lentils It could have been any legume she could have done because I think you need a different quality of protein. In fact, not even different. I think you need more protein than the intentionally induced low-protein diet you're on. Some people thrive on that. Other people need more. So because she wasn't allowed any vegan sources of protein, she just threw the baby out with a bathwater and went all the way over to fish. So I said, we're going to give you a legume protein, totally different than nutter seed protein. And we're going to soak that legume first, possibly slightly sprout it which makes all gastrointestinal issues go away. Raw legumes, unbelievably hard to digest when you sprout them slightly or soak them and cook them really easy. That took care of the protein and it took care of, she had so many anti-cancer compounds in the legumes, hormone balancing properties, it was absolutely awesome. The second thing I had her do is I said, I want you to put flaxseed oil on it because she wasn't getting any fatty acids hardly and she was getting very few omega-3s, which she needed. She was getting that from the fish in a more toxic form. We'll go into that in a minute. And she was also hardly eating any salt, only what was naturally occurring in food. She was not allowed to add any. And when you go on too low of a salt diet and or drink massive, massive quantities of of, of liquid, let's say water, massive, like ridiculous, like the types you drink on a, a water fast, you actually become dehydrated, even though you're drinking water because you need salt to hold that water in solution. And when you eat too much sugar, which she wasn't though, you can start to crave salt. She was craving salt because she wasn't allowed any. She wasn't overdoing anything, just not allowed any. And your body will start to crave things that it remembers. It thinks what did this person have that used to have salt and it'll start to crave either chips with salt or a dish or all sorts of food that you used to have with salt but you don't eat those anymore. They're not part of your ideas. So the next thing it starts to crave if you don't give it that, and this happens with, I say virtually everybody, is you start to crave blood Blood is very, very salty. And if you don't have enough in your system, your body will start to crave blood. There's no reason to eat blood because you have to induce this sodium deficiency. And she also craved blood with, on a creature that had some salt on it to begin with, a saltwater creature. So that's another reason she's craved fish. In my, in my, my opinion, my experience. And this wasn't the first person like this I've worked with. And so she was in touch with me over the next year. The first time she had it, she said, "Wow." That meal was awesome. Legumes, in her case lentils, with flaxseed oil and a whole, uh, uh, an unrefined sea salt. She said it was absolutely awesome. And I followed with her over a year, and during that time she never craved fish or any animal protein ever again. And from then we lost touch, and I assume she just continued that. And I have suggested that type of idea to hundreds of people that have gotten into, gotten into raw foods or other restrictive diets and started to crave animal products, or in some cases, fish. And I've never seen it not be able to be solved within a healthier plant based paradigm. And something that is not known, and something that is critical to know about animal protein and also about a raw foods diet, and they completely tie together. And this is, I want to make sure everybody understands this. On a raw food diet, there's two classifications of food raw and cooked. And there's no in-between. If it's raw, it's good. If it's cooked, it's bad. And one of the main reasons given for a raw food diet, it's not talked about as much anymore as that raw food diets become bigger, but it's the foundation. It's one of the two founding principles that convinced me to be a raw food are absolutely core research. And this was research done in the 30s by a gentleman named Paul Kukachoff. He was an MD. We don't know every exactly thing that he did because the records aren't great, but the story goes that he tested foods that had been cooked and he had had someone ingest them, multiple people ingest this food, and he looked at their white blood cells. And the white blood cells are things that protect you from, from viruses, from bacteria, from parasites. And they also, if, you have, if you're poisoned for some reason, your white blood cell count goes up to several times its normal level to react to this poison, so it's on immune alert. If someone has um, late-stage cancers or other late-stage immune dysfunctions, their white blood cells are Massive quantities in their blood. It's just incredible to see how many white blood cells are fighting on your body's side. And your white blood cells will fight to the death, to the end of you, to keep you alive. They're absolutely a million percent committed to your survival. And that's critical to remember. And that that elevation of the white blood cell count that happens when you're poisoned also is called leukocytosis. And according to Paul Kukajov, all cooked foods cause leukocytosis. Anytime you cook your food and then eat it, you are having an immune reaction the same as if you ingested a deadly poison. There's no greater immune reaction, according to this research. Now, that is huge. Again, one of the main reasons I went raw back in 1990. I'm not all raw now. We'll talk about that later. Now, Probably about 12 years ago or longer, maybe 15, I wanted to see, I wanted to confirm, because there wasn't as much data on that as I wanted, what caused leukocytosis, what cooked foods were causing it, and what cooked foods were not. So my first experiment with that, and at this point I was almost entirely eating raw foods, and I did not eat health food, junk food at all. So I took my live blood cell analysis microscope where I could see my red blood cells, my white blood cells. I could see bacteria. I could see if my blood was spread apart or was clumping. So many things you can see visually with that type of blood testing. Put it in the back of my van, drove to the lab, drove to the lab that, did, that drew the blood and did the testing. Looked at my blood, saw my blood, blood cells spread apart, saw my white blood cells. There was very little bacteria in there because the, the white blood cells were getting to them easily and eating them. I then immediately went up to the lab and had my blood drawn, and had a whole blood panel done, including white blood cell count. What was my white blood cell count? Then went back to my van, and I, I got the most toxic thing I could get at the health store, the worst thing that I would put in my body. And at that time, it was one of those big, giant cookies, you know, like the, the size of your face. It was a chocolate chip cookie with white sugar, white flour, and hydrogenated oil, and the caffeine from the chocolate. It was a garbage cookie. Um, I ate two and three quarters of them. I couldn't eat three all at once because I would have thrown up if I ate the last three quarters. Because it was just so heavy and so processed. Although I must say, I didn't eat, I didn't eat things like that at all at the time. So it was actually, um, emotionally, it was very fun to eat a cookie. I felt very sinful doing that. <laughs> um, I then, I had a rapid heart heartbeat as if I was allergic to something. And just because there was so much fat, and sugar, my sugar was so high in my blood, and this, this was toxic. I thought, if anything is going to initiate leukocytosis, my heart rate was elevated, my breathing was a little bit elevated, I could, my temperature went up, and this happens when you eat things that aren't good for you. I thought, if anything is going to cause leukocytosis, this is definitely going to do it. And it was only about 20 to 30 minutes that it took for this cookie to get in my system. put my blood, my blood on the live blood cell analysis microscope in my van, and I saw my red blood cells that were previously completely spread apart, totally clumped up in stacks of thousands. My circulation was horrible. I had bacteria. All of a sudden, I had large amounts of bacteria in my bloodstream, but I didn't have any more white blood cells. And the reason I had more bacteria in my bloodstream is these white blood cells couldn't get through the muck to that bacteria. But the white blood cell count in the microscope was the same. Now, the microscope, you only get a very, very small snapshot, a very small live picture of what's going on. So I thought they might be hiding somewhere. Let me go in. Let's go, go into the lab. I went to the lab had my blood work done again. A couple days later when the lab work came back, I found that my triglycerides, meaning my blood fats after the cookie was through the roof. It was unhealthfully high, so the cookie was clearly in my system, the fat was in my system. My blood sugar and my insulin were also extremely high, which also showed that the cookie was in my system. My cholesterol was slightly elevated because I had an oxidized saturated fat in the hydrogenated oil, all animal products come with oxidized, saturated fats, by the way. This wasn't from the animal product. This was from a vegetable food. So that cookie was absolutely in my system, evidenced by the the cholesterol, the triglycerides, the insulin, and the blood sugar. But my white blood cell count did not change at all. There was no difference in my white blood cell count. Now, that was not a healthy cookie. That was toxic. But my white blood cell count didn't change. Now, I repeated that with myself and with many other people with many different types of foods trying to initiate leukocytosis to, to validate this function and say, when does this occur? What was Paul Kukajoff talking about? We need some modern research on that. And here's what I found, and here's one of the shocking things that I found. So right now, I'm finding the main tenant of raw foods is leukocytosis, but yet cooked foods are not causing leukocytosis, not a single one. I then found some people that I did testing on that were eating other foods. I said, let's have you eat. I had people have a bunch of different types of animal foods. I said, let's see if, if, if any animal foods cause this. And I had them eat various types of animal foods, regular processed animal foods, and also things like free range and wild caught and grass fed, all sorts of the, the, what you would think would be the best possible quality, even things from, you know, happy animals that were, slaughtered humanely. I don't know how that works, how to humanely slaughter a creature because I've seen humane slaughter and no one would think it's humane. But all that stuff, all the good criteria. What I found out is that animal protein, specifically, not the fat, not other components, but the protein in animal, cause leukocytosis. It caused a raising of the body's white blood cell count every single time. I then had some of these people who were willing to do it eat the same food raw, the animal protein raw. And I found that the raw animal protein caused leukocytosis just as much as any of the cooked. And you think, why? Why would this be happening? Why is my white blood cell count going up with animal protein? And there's an awesome, awesome reason that will make sense to everybody and you will start to question how much animal protein you want to consume. Those who are either fortunate or unfortunate enough to get an organ transplant operation, if you lose your kidney or your liver or some other organ, you can actually get that from someone who just got an accident. If they have a compatible blood type, you can get their organ transplanted in your body that without you would die. I have a lot of respect for people who are willing to do that and put that on the license that if they're not going to use that organ, they want someone else to benefit from that. That's an act of compassion. No matter what they eat or what they live or they do, that particular act is compassion. I have a lot of respect for those people. But when you get that, that someone else's kidney or someone else's liver, the recipient of that foreign organ needs to take blood, excuse me, needs to take immunosuppressive drugs for the, less, for the rest of their shortened lives or your body will reject that organ. And why is that? flash back to the white blood cells we talked about earlier which are a thousand million percent committed to protecting you they will never ever leave their mission of protecting you and when something comes in your body that is not you your immune system will attack that with a vengeance that if they were warriors on the battlefield they would win any war they are so voracious so if you have a poison that comes in a pesticide anything a bacteria a parasite something that's not you they'll attack it So when you have a protein coming in, an organ coming in from someone else and it recognizes and it analyzes that protein and DNA signature and the body determines this is not you, it's not from you, it's not of you, it didn't come from you, so I need to attack this and kill it just like it's a bacteria or a parasite or a poison and that's exactly what the entire immune system... and the the white blood cells do, you have localized leukocytosis around that entire organ. Your body is constantly trying to attack it, constantly. Now, when you have animal protein, animal flesh coming in, it is no different than an organ transplant operation. The body recognizes it exactly the same way. This is a different protein DNA signature coming into my body, and it's not me. I have to attack it and kill it, and that is why animal products, raw or cooked, cause leukocytosis, and Paul Kukuchov misinterpreted his data, because he did cooked and raw both vegetable foods and animal products, and he didn't differentiate the results. It just got diluted down to cooked food.
1: Did, does that apply... I know the raw food movement talked about Pottinger's study with the cats and they were fed the raw food meat diet versus the cooked and more cancer in the cooked meat. Are you, I, mean, I know you're familiar with that study, right?
0: I am. i would be happy to speak on it a little bit. Yeah. I have not done leukocytosis studies in cats. I've only done it in human beings. Now, cats have very different systems in a lot of areas than human beings for processing animal protein. And they may have a different system for processing animal protein than us. Um, and so they may not have leukocytosis. I don't know yet. I don't know if babies have leukocytosis. I doubt that babies have leukocytosis because babies, human babies, are not, they can thrive being vegans from birth. But that is not ideal for a baby. Babies do not have... Uh, they don't have the ability to form certain nutrients yet, and they need it from their mother's milk. That is the perfect, perfect food for a baby, without a doubt. So I don't know what happens with cats. However, let's punch, punch a hole in Pottinger, because what Pottinger's cat proves that if you give a cat cooked meat, just cooked meat, that the cat's going to get sick and have, not be able to, the, uh, you know, I think they went, they stopped being fertile, they couldn't reproduce, they had all these diseases and cancers. But if you feed a cat cooked or raw vegan food, that cat will thrive for thousands and thousands and thousands of generations. So the only thing that would show is that cooked animal products for a cat are really bad for cats, but has no bearing on whether you should eat raw food as a human, because we know as a human, if you eat raw meat, you get leukocytosis. And we also know that ancient cultures, through all the ancient cultures, the, 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 the groups that got the diseases, the big disease, the heart disease and the cancers and so forth, were only the kings and queens and emperors and the nobility that ate significant quantities of animal products. The peasants that worked out in the fields and ate little to no animal products because they couldn't afford it did not get these diseases. And even in Egyptian mummies, they have found evidence of narrowing of the arteries from cholesterol deposits. Chemicals had not even been invented yet. Yet, these pharaohs were getting heart disease. And what were they getting heart disease from? The same thing that people get heart disease from today, which is primarily animal products. Not exclusively, but primarily. So, pottinger's cats really doesn't have a lot of relevance, unless you're a cat. And even then, cats on vegan diets are healthier. And just as healthier or healthier, if you do it right, than cats eating a raw meat diet. But yet cats are clearly designed to be eating animal products. There's no question about that. Yet you can still make them vegan. And cats are also notorious for having kidney problems, which comes from the processing of animal protein. So more research needs to be done on cats. But that's really a cat issue. So And when studies have been done on veganism, T. Colin Campbell, did. did, uh, he led the China study. And many of you are familiar with this. But what most people are not familiar with is absolutely critical.
1: Well I don't, I don't know that many people are familiar with that actually. Okay,
0: well this is the largest epidemiological study in history of the world. They studied tens of thousands of people from different um, excuse me actually thousands of people from different communities in rural China, rural to more urban, and they just, they assessed how many animal products they ate and what diseases and health conditions they had. And they went down from a high consumption of animal products down to approximately 5% consumption of animal products. They did not study any vegan cultures because there wasn't any pure vegan culture in China, at least not the ones they studied. And they found that heart disease, cancer, arthritis, osteoporosis, hormone imbalance, every health parameter they studied, the less animal products you consumed, the less of those diseases you had, all the way down on a perfect curve. So the, Now, they didn't, since they didn't test anyone with zero, it was only 5%. The only thing that could be argued by someone saying you must eat meat to be healthy is 5% of your diet. Because we have such clear evidence showing that down to 5%, you get even healthier. So I really think that's the only, the only part that someone could scientifically argue is she would be eating 5% animal products. And I say the evidence is clearly shows that no, not only do not need to do that, but there's a better way. But let's say you're a raw fooder. And you get into raw foods and you start to get into an 80-10-10 diet, which a lot of people do because sometimes on the dark side of raw foods, you can start eating large quantities of fat. Fat isn't critically important for us and just like we told, I talked about the woman early who needed more omega-3s and she got it from flax oil. She didn't have enough fat. But our raw foods diet, you don't eat grains for the most part. Most people don't eat legumes because raw sprouted legumes are unbelievably hard to digest. So sometimes they eat a tremendous amount of fat. This amount of fat, even though it is good fat, if you eat large amounts of fat, it can start to promote certain cancers. And it can also start to promote estrogen dominance in both men and women. And this is really obvious for women who are menstruating, because I've seen women who had normal menstrual cycles or who have had basically no problems with the menstrual cycles on a whole food, low-fat, plant-based diet or just a regular diet that they had very few problems, and go on a high fat raw food diet, all of a sudden they have breast tenderness, they have emotional challenges during that time of the month, and they have horrible cramping and pain. They didn't have it before. And actually, Neil Bernard, MD, put a bunch of women on a a test, and he had them go on a low fat whole food vegan diet, and all of them had dramatic reductions in their their menstrual cycles, their menstrual symptoms, their problems, dramatic, just from lowering the fat. And he actually asked them to then go back on their normal diets to see as a control group to see if it would come back. And they all refused. They all violated their contracts with the study because they said, I'm never going to do that again. I don't want to ever go back to that high-fat regime and have those menstrual issues. And he concluded that was a successful study even though they never finished it. So some of a high-fat raw food diet, eating heavy things, too heavy, then they're like, you know what, I'm eating too much fat, I need to go on a low fat, an 80% carbohydrate, 10% protein, 10% fat diet, which is an 80-10-10 diet, also leans towards fruitarianism. And for a time, for many people, that actually helps them because all of a sudden they're like, wow, I'm not having such hard to digest, difficult to deal with heavy food and, you know, I'm not fat anymore as a raw food or eating all that fat. I'm not nauseous from eating so much fat, I'm not broken out. Some people in the raw foods movement and some health professionals in the raw foods movement, well-known health professionals, eat so much fat because they're raw. And then also now some of these people are eating raw raw animal products and cooked. There's so much fat that they have an estrogen dominance in their own bodies. In this case, I'm talking about men, that they actually start to develop breasts. And this is real. And there's real people out there with man boobs because they're eating way too high fat and promoting too much estrogen in their body. So, some of those people go to an 80-10-10 diet, they go all the way over to the other end of the spectrum, they throw the baby out with a bathwater because they can't have anything cooked in the middle. Short term, they do a lot better. Like, wow, I can think, I can run, I can exercise, I can do all these things now. But I have never, let me me not qualify never, I have almost never seen someone long term thrive on an 80-10-10 diet. There's a very few what I consider short term exceptions of athletes who are burning sugar massively, But the majority of those people, even though they're athletic, that go on that diet, in my experience, fail. And this is not not just my opinion. This is my clinical experience. They fail. They become deficient in both fatty acids, in B12, in protein, in so many other things. And then from there, they go back to either eating regular diet, regular junk food, raw meat, and or they are ripe for a price potential or a paleo diet that allows them some more protein and some more fat. Neither fruitarianism or ultra-high-fat raw, in my experience, is at all balanced.
1: You said you were going to tie in fruit paleo. Is that where that ties in, 80-10-10? Is that another word for that? Yes. Okay.
0: Absolutely. The, the, the worst thing that's ever happened to a plant-based diet or to vegan people being vegan is fruitarianism or 80-10-10 type diets because it causes people, it forces them to eat meat. Because it doesn't allow them anything else, and they want to stay on a raw, natural type paragram. All soy products are poisonous. All legumes are poisonous. Everything cooked is poisonous. It's all crap and garbage. All grains are bad. They all have gluten. They all have um, chemicals in them. All of which is not true. None of that is actually true. And therefore, they, they just paleo offers an option, and they go for it because it it has it seems to have some more balance to it in some ways. Um, and nutritionally, it actually does than a fruitarian diet. For a lot of people but it also comes with these consequences including oxidized fat and cholesterol that contributes to heart disease other components in the animal product that contribute to cancer and leukocytosis every single time you eat that animal all of which is solvable with things like the lentil flaxseed oil and celtic sea salt meal that i talked about earlier that type of thing tofu tempeh lentils all these things as long as they're organic are completely phenomenal for you, and they're extraordinarily hormone balancing. In fact, if you put someone on a high-fat diet, whether it's a high-fat raw foods or a high-fat junk food diet, and it's more obvious with women, and they have estrogen issues, menstrual problems, if you give them enough phytoestrogens, which you only get from food, only get from plant foods, their estrogen-dominant symptoms will go away. Their menstrual issues will go away, and I want to restate that. Even if you're high fat, if you have a lot of phytoestrogens, you will not have estrogen dominance. Which brings us to another reason people go from raw to paleo or raw to animal or raw to Atkins type things is because soy products right now are demonized. It used to be that they were the greatest thing for us. Now it's they're the worst thing for us. And here are what I think, here's what I believe is an evolution of that concept. And if you are of the opinion that all soy products are bad, If you're a health professional and you believe that or you've been taught that or you've read that or you think that most most of the alternative community now thinks that, I ask you to listen with an open mind and try to see if there's anything in what I'm saying that's not true that doesn't make sense to you. And here it is. The thought is that phytoestrogens that come from a lot of different plant foods, because they're estrogenic, they have a weak estrogenic effect in the body. And we know that excess estrogen it contributes to hormonal cancers in both men and women and hormonal imbalance. And actually chemicals, mostly petrochemicals but other synthetic chemicals, are known as xenoestrogens from our environment. It comes from plastic. It comes from pesticides. There's so many different things. And they're horrible, and they disrupt our endocrine system. They disrupt our immune system. Bisphenol A, for example, is a xenoestrogen. So we assume that those are so bad, and even the body's own produced estrogens are so bad. Therefore, these phytoestrogens that are weak estrogens that occur in large quantities in certain plants are also going to promote cancers. They're going to promote immune dysfunction. If you think only a little bit, you might think that. But then you might think, is there any difference between these two products? Is there anything different? And if soy foods, which are probably the second highest thing in phytoestrogens, promoted cancers and immune disruption and endocrine disruption, then the cultures that have been traditionally for thousands of years eating the most soy products, the most whole, and we're talking cultures eating whole soy products, we're talking tofu, tempeh, soy milk, miso, edamame, which is whole soybeans cooked, they're eating cooked, whole organic soybeans, they would have the least amount of endocrine-based cancers and other hormonally-based estrogen-dominant cancers. Does that make sense to you, Steve?
1: No.
0: <laughs> Let me state it another way because I think you, you answered a further question. If soy <laughs> causes it, then these people with eating the most soy should have the most cancer.
1: Well, you would imagine.
0: Right. I mean, it's, it, you can't escape that. It's, it's, we have to not escape that. It's got to be the case. If soy promotes all these diseases, then the people who consume the most soy have got to have these diseases. You can't get away from it.
1: And they, they're having pretty processed versions, right? I mean, tofu is a staple. I mean, that's a pretty processed version of soy.
0: Tofu and soy milk. Tofu is just solidified soy milk. It's kind of like the juice from soybean. So this is somewhat processed. Still not, not bad. Tofu is not bad, though. Not as good as edamame or tempeh or some other things. But these cultures, we find out, have the least hormone estrogen-based cancers and the least hormonally estrogen-based endocrine disruption of any culture by far. But soy products cause these issues. Phytoestrogens cause estrogen dominance, yet the people that consume them don't have them. That's a huge disconnect. And I ask everyone listening to please consider that massive disconnect. But yet you're saying there's evidence and there's research papers and some research studies showing that, quote, soy or phytoestrogens disrupts hormones and creates estrogen dominance. That's also true. But how can that be true at the same time? And I'll tell you how it can be true at the same time. The studies that have shown that soy products, for example, inhibit growth, or, and you can apply this to any legume, are done on raw soybeans, which have enzyme inhibitors in them. All raw seeds, all things that can grow into a plant have enzyme inhibitors in them, which prevents that food from having any biological activity. It essentially puts it on a cryogenic freeze. So when you take a sunflower seed, a grain of camoud, of millet, of barley, of a soybean, a lentil, all those things that can grow into a plant, and it dries You can save those things for hundreds, in some cases, thousands of years. If there was enzyme activity going on in that food, it would rot. It would turn into compost. It couldn't be preserved. But that's what the enzyme inhibitors do. They keep it on a stasis until it grows. So when you eat soybeans or grains raw, you are not only can you not access the enzymes in that food because of the enzyme inhibitors, but it actually inhibits some of your body's own enzyme production. It's enzyme negative, even though it's raw. And the original research on enzymes, showing that enzymes were so important in Edward Howell's book, Enzyme Nutrition, from decades ago, that is the main book, the Bible of enzymes for the raw food, or showing we should eat raw foods, his experiments were done on feeding animals large quantities of unsoaked nuts and seeds and grains. Unsoaked, raw, and they had enlarged pancreases, and they had enzyme deficiencies, but it was on raw food. But that's the other big reason that raw fooders, and that I was taught you should eat raw food is because they have more enzymes. Yet the research shows that raw food caused enzyme deficiency. Not all raw foods, but nuts and seeds. But it did not indict cooked foods at all. So, when you feed animals raw soybeans, they don't grow well because there's enzyme inhibitors in there. If you feed them cooked soybeans, they thrive. Also, If you take soy protein isolate, especially if it's GMO, anything GMO is toxic. If it's GMO, it's not even the same food. But let's take non-GMO, just isolated soy protein. When you take foods out of their natural context and isolate the phytonutrients in there, nature builds in a balance. For example, iron from kale or from spirulina or from parsley or from lettuce has no toxicity in the human body at whatsoever but iron from a supplement or from an animal product is extremely toxic. because an oxidant, it creates free radicals. And if you have enough of it, you can actually die, whether it's from an animal product or a supplement. But you can't get that from the vegetable kingdom. You can't hurt yourself from the iron from the vegetable kingdom because it's a whole iron. It's all surrounded by a protein, a bioflavid, and a lipid complex that allows the body to selectively absorb it, and it's completely balanced no matter how much you consume. Now, phytoestrogens in a whole soybeans, in whole legumes, are in a complete natural balance, so there's a check and balance for every single component there, and it's completely non-toxic at any level of usage as evidenced by thousands of years of cultures eating these soy foods, whole soy foods. Now, when those cultures move away to, let's say, America, the first generation people have slightly elevated cancer incidence, the first generation of people that moved to America. But the second generation that grows up and eats an American diet without all these soy foods has the same level of cancer and immune dysfunction as any American, so it's not a genetic thing. It's just a lifestyle thing. So the soy protein isolate we'll get back to is a concentration and an elimination of some of the critical components of the phytoestrogen matrix. So you're only getting part of the equation, and the part you're getting is the part that does lead to estrogen dominance. Soy protein isolate can absolutely lead to estrogen dominance, and I do not recommend it at all for people. It's far better than animal protein, but it will cause estrogen dominance, but whole soy foods will never, ever, ever do that. And it's interesting. You would think the worst proteins in the vegetable kingdom are soy protein isolate and gluten, concentrated gluten that occurs as pure gluten, not just a few percent that would normally occur in only some grains, not all grains. But when we talk about the China study, T. Cole and Campbell fed protein to to rats, and he found out that when he fed them gluten and soy protein isolate, he could not, no matter what concentration he fed them, he couldn't get them to, to promote cancer from those two proteins, the worst vegan proteins there are. But when he fed them casein at almost any concentration from dairy, they formed tumors and cancer like there was no tomorrow. He had to lower the concentration of casein in their diet to five percent before they stopped promoting tumors in their body, which is more evidence showing that animal protein has an immune reaction and promotes cancers, whereas vegetable proteins, even the worst ones, don't. But you don't have to make that choice and have things with soy protein isolate in it. You can have things with tofu, with tempeh, with edamame, with miso, with gluten-free soy sauce. Don't get the ones with barley or other things. Get the ones that are gluten-free as long as it is organic. And in fact, if you want to protect yourself against xenoestrogens, what the phytoestrogens do is they go into the estrogen receptor sites in your body and they block the absorption of the naturally body-produced estrogens or of the xenoestrogens. And they don't allow those to be absorbed and they don't allow them to hurt you. However, they don't block them to the point where... It where it prevents you from using the estrogen you're supposed to. There's a smartness and an intelligence in those phytoestrogens, in that natural component that we evolved eating to protect us against excess estrogen but allow us the estrogen we want. For example, in men, the phytoestrogen component um, of the foods has a much lesser effect than it does in women because women produce more, 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 phytoestrogen, more estrogens than men does. But if a woman is low on estrogen, low on estrogen, now that same food will allow every morsel of estrogen that she's making to be utilized, and in fact, they will start to contribute an estrogenic effect. The phytoestrogens will contribute an estrogenic effect in the woman or in the man if needed. They're adaptogens. They're perfectly balanced. And so that's another reason why soy foods and other things with phytoestrogens in them have gotten a bad rap. And recently, it has bled out to flax seeds, because flax seeds have much higher quantities of phytoestrogens in them than soybeans. So some people are not eating flax seeds or they're not giving it to their children or their young girls or their, their, their men or their boys. And if flax seeds promoted cancer, we wouldn't have 27 identified anti cancer substances in flax seeds. We wouldn't have a tremendous amount of research showing that flax seeds are anti cancer and hormone balancing. And we wouldn't have a study from Canada from about 10 or 12 years ago that made very little press. Women were diagnosed with breast cancer. And, and, and two to four weeks later, they came back for surgery, either a mastectomy or a lumpectomy, you may, meaning either they took the lump out of the breast or they took the entire breast out. Came back two to four weeks later. After diagnosis, in those two to four weeks, they had two tablespoons of flax seeds ground up in the morning. That's all they did differently. Go back, take two tablespoons of flax seeds, call me in two weeks or call me in four weeks, show up and we're going to chop your breast off. It was found when they gave them a a follow-up mammography before they did the uh, surgery that all of them either stopped the progression of those cancers or reduced their breast tumor sizes, in some cases up to 50%. Now, if these phytoestrogens in whole food form promoted cancer, these women would have no breast left. there would be all tumor. But exactly the reverse happened. That's amazing. If that were a drug or some patentable substance, the world would be on fire with that information. That's all these women did. So what did these crazy, unethical people do? They were running the research, and maybe they were, their lives were threatened, and there was a grant, and you know, I don't know who threatened them or tried to kill them. They said, okay, well, let's go ahead and just, Take your breast partially off, or just take one or two of your breasts entirely off. Even though we had a reduction in size from flax seeds with high naturally occurring phytoestrogen content, that's unconscionable what they did in that study. And it's also unconscionable if someone knows about that to tell people don't eat flax seeds because you're going to get cancer when it could be the very thing that could help save their life.
1: Wow. So. If we can cap up those five reasons there, so we talked about organic, whole food, vegan, cooked uh, versus raw.
0: Organic, whole food, vegan, lots of fruits and vegetables with high high content of high water content fruits and vegetables. And also the fifth factor in there, 20% of why a raw food diet is good is absolutely attributable to fresh and raw. If you want to achieve the optimum level of health in your diet, in your body, you simply have got to include a large percentage of fresh, raw, whole fruits and vegetables. You can be extraordinarily healthy with some cooked, but you've got to have some raw to be healthy. And it depends on the time of year. In the winter, certain things are better cooked. And cruciferous vegetables, for example, broccoli, cauliflower, uh, cabbages, kale, if you have a large amount of those, they can actually start to inhibit your thyroid function but if you, and they are very hard to digest in large quantities, doesn't mean you can't have some of them raw. But if you steam them, the nutrient bioavailability goes dramatically up. It actually has a much greater warming and heating effect on people, and there's no digestive issues and no thyroid malfunction whatsoever. There's certain things that were simply meant to be cooked.
1: And finally, you mentioned the idea of gluten free uh, soy sauce, and before that, talked about gluten maybe not being as bad. What is the, what is the uh, research on gluten?
0: I don't think that gluten intolerance is a natural situation, what, gluten intolerance whatsoever, but regardless, it is real and it's here. It's very popular now to be gluten-free and it's far bigger of an issue than it really is. The estimates are 20-30% of people are gluten intolerant, who knows what it is. But if you don't have an issue with gluten, then you don't have an issue with gluten, and you don't need to avoid any grains that have gluten in them. And the grains that have gluten in them are wheat, barley, and rye for the most part. But information on what gluten does to people with gluten intolerance from gluten-containing grains is used by authors to indict all grains, all grains. So millet, brown rice, quinoa, amaranth, teff, buckwheat, all these grains are also garbage for you, and that's very popular to be on a grain-free diet because gluten grains hurt people with gluten intolerance. Now, if you have gluten intolerance, which is celiac disease, gluten is like kryptonite for you. Even, small, even smelling it can disrupt your brain. It can disrupt your absorption. It can cause you pain. And I know this very, very well because my wife is a hardcore celiac. She can't even handle essence of gluten. In fact, she can tell if there's gluten in a product before a, a test even does. So if you want to avoid grains and you want to be gluten-free and my company for example is entirely gluten-free because of this, because so many people have issues with it or think they do, it's easy to do it and you can still eat grains. Don't eat them raw though. It's very hard to digest and process.
1: Well Dr. Sheridan, a wealth of information. Thanks so much for being here and part of Evolve Palooza, and getting these five key facts out that we need to know, that the raw food movement needs to know and we need to know to evolve as a species.
0: I agree. No matter what diet you're on, no matter what you're eating. And you don't have to be perfect. You don't have to do everything all the time. Strive to be organic. Strive to be whole foods. Strive to eat a large quantity of fruits and vegetables. Strive to eat a lot of your food raw. And strive to eat most or all of your food from plant sources. It makes a dramatic difference in your your health, the health of the environment. And also, it's a more compassionate choice to make for animals.
1: Wow, just a wealth of information and so valuable. Thank you for being here, Dr. Jameis Sheridan, and part of our event.
0: Thank you for having me, Steve. It's always a pleasure.
1: Dr. James Sheridan is the co-founder and CEO of HealthForce Nutritionals, the best nutritional company in the world, the best products veganic, trueganic. Isn't that right, Dr.
0: Sheridan? That, that's correct. It's a whole other level of testing and verification.
1: Healthforce.com, www.healthforce.com and Warrior Force, which you can find at www.warriorforce.com www.warriorforce.com. Dr. Jameth, anything to say in closing here? It's just been incredible as always.
0: Um, Thank you for having me. I think this is an incredible event with so many different people from so many different disciplines, but all talking about evolving our species and evolving our consciousness. And I say, don't just eat evolution, don't just think and live it. Do all of it. Think it, absorb it, educate yourself, and do everything you can to make your life better your life more successful and I'm not just talking monetarily I'm talking just as a human being on the planet making a difference and do everything you can to help make our planet make a difference that supports us or make a difference for our planet rather
1: Dr. James Sheridan thanks again Dr. Sheridan thank you and thank you for tuning in to this episode of Juice Guru Radio once again our deepest sympathies to Dr. James Sheridan may his words live on we'll continue to publish his words through uh, more interviews and We'll put up some transcripts and some blogs at juicegururadio.com to honor our friend and make sure his message lives on. This is Steve Prusek. Thank you. We'll see you next time.
0: Thank you for listening to Juice Guru Radio. Find out more about us at juicegururadio.com. Until next time, get your juice on.